Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com don't touch that dial you're tuned in to the dread podcast network you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director writer and producer now, here's your host, Nick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. We've talked about horror comedy before, and we will again, but the time is right to address it one more time. Balancing fear with laughs is a delicate act, and more often than not, horror comedies are neither funny nor frightening. There are exceptions, of course, and they stand out clearly and have become favorites among genre fans. But for most, the makers seem to feel that spoofing a horror classic is enough to trigger laughter. That to parody Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger or Norman Bates or King Kong or Ghostface, to just have them show up and repeat their antics to the accompaniment of a laugh track or psycho-inspired shrieking violins means big, knowing, winking yucks. But the horror comedy done right is a thing of beauty. When the makers of a film take both their horror and their comedy seriously, approach it with craft and passion and understanding, the result can be something as glorious as an American werewolf in London, or The Howling, or Werewolves Within, or What We Do in the Shadows. These were made by people with passion and understanding of the genre, with wit and brains and a firm command of the tools of filmmaking. The performances are grounded, and the sense of parody within them is subsumed by the story being told. John Landis had trouble selling an American werewolf because studio executives would say, well, is this a horror movie? Yes. But it's funny. Yes. But it's scary. Exactly. A horror comedy that works is a scary movie that's funny, or a funny movie that's scary. It's a tightrope walk that's tough to pull off, but when it works, it is satisfying as a movie can be. Spoofing and parodying horror is all well and good, but if wit and imagination are the driving force, so much the better. I think the first horror comedy I ever saw was surely Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, and it's the movie along with A Hard Day's Night that I've probably seen more than any other. Lon Chaney Jr., Bela Lugosi, Glenn Strange, and even Vincent Price played their monsters straight, a lovely counterpoint to the antics of Bud and Lou. 
Our guest today created one of the best horror comedies of all time with Shaun of the Dead, one of the most gleeful and knowing love letters to the horror cinema ever made. But his new movie, Last Night in Soho, is his first real balls-to-the-wall horror movie, and not a comedy. It's a twisty, nostalgic thriller with a mind of its own, and we'll talk with director Edgar Wright all about that and his life in the cinema after this. Heavy Metal Magazine and the new fantasy, sci-fi, and horror platform Everscapes are releasing an exclusive two-part series of NFTs backed by George C. Romero, son of George A. Romero, as a precursor to The Night of the Living Dead. The Rise explores the story before the worst night on earth with an amazing collection of exclusive NFTs. Immerse yourself in this terrifying saga through a 100-piece limited edition NFT collection that includes rare art, 3D digital sculpts, motion comics, and more, all brought to life, or death, for the very first time. There will be two waves of terror with the first 50-piece set launching on Halloween. Visit Everscapes.io now. That's E-V-E-R-S-C-A-P-E-S dot I-O now. Available now from Dread, Val. Finn, a wanted criminal, hides out with an escort named Val, a demon. Val offers to make his problems disappear if he follows her rules. She's been expecting him all along, and it won't be easy to escape Val's dungeon. Val is out now everywhere you buy or rent movies and on Blu-ray November 2nd. Val. So, Edgar, it started as a kid. Tell me about growing up in Dorset. Your, your family, were they interested in the arts? Uh, I know you have a brother who's an artist. So tell me what, what your childhood was like. Uh, my parents are both... Uh were art teachers and then they also left teaching at a certain point when in when I was growing up to to be artists and then at a certain point went back to being teachers which I think was kind of tough for them so Mm. I do come from an artistic family and and certainly my parents were very encouraging to me and my brother to sort of pursue arts and also I think that they got me and my brother into cinema because you know they would they would take us to see movies and 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 sometimes when they were doing craft fairs to kind of sell their like um uh, their designs they used to kind of do sort of screen printing and do screen printing on like scarves and like dresses and um they would do these craft fairs and then because they couldn't afford a babysitter they would basically dump me and my brother at the cinema uh. which is something probably I'm not saying that parents should do that today leave a, a six year old <laughs> and an eight year old sitting in a cinema on their own but we were perfectly happy we loved it so that was uh, when I was I grew up in Dorset in a town called Swanage and um, there was another town nearby Bournemouth like a, a sort of coastal town that had lots of cinemas so I guess around that period of when I lived in Dorset um, from like the first movie I saw at the cinema was Star Wars when I was like aged. Oh my God! Three, <laughs> and and then I think just around that period it was basically all of the. I don't know not before I knew what the word genre meant, but certainly the things that we were interested in were the, the the genre films, and you know so all of the films of that era, you know Star Wars, Superman, The Black Hole. Um, you know, Popeye, um, Lord of the Rings, Star Trek, the motion picture. So it would usually be 
those were the movies that we went to see. And I was certainly aware of horror films as a sort of an, as an illicit thing that I couldn't see because I certainly remember sort of being aware of them through just posters in the cinemas, like seeing the poster for Alien or seeing the poster for Friday the 13th. Mm -hmm. I remember also seeing the poster for Happy Birthday to Me, which particularly struck me when I was maybe like seven years old. Oh, with the uh, the cake and the skewer. Yeah, (laughs) the shish kebab in the mouth. You don't forget that in a hurry when you're seven years old. (laughs) But I used to, and you'll remember this magazine, actually it's still going, but like a particular incarnation of it. Um, Because we were interested in sci-fi and fantasy my parents used to buy me and my brother starburst magazine yeah now in the early 80s i don't know if you remember this phase when alan jones was editing uh there was an early 80s phase of starburst when it was really gory i remember that yes now i think my parents bought this for me and my brother without really thinking what the contents of the magazine were they thought it was outer space stuff rather than gore and yeah so then as a seven-year-old and I remember vividly, I had quite a few issues of them and they would, you know, have, uh, you know, uh, features on American Wealth in London or The Thing or and then, you know, like whole bits on Lucia Fiorci zombie films yeah. or like kind of like slasher films. And I just remember like because I was like way too young to see them and I knew I would never see them. But then I would form this. Um, I would imagine what they would be like just from like the stills and the posters. And I remember even at the back of Starburst, they'd have like these, you know, like for sale quad posters. And I'd see like the quad poster for Night of the Living Dead and just which was just an illustration. But then I haven't seen the film, but I'm already like formulating what I think the film's going to be like. So I guess in a weird way, I, 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 I thought a lot about these films and this continued like through into my teens because... My parents didn't have a VCR and uh, sort of sort of refused to get a VCR, in fact. Mm. And so I wouldn't really be able to watch what I wanted to watch unless one of my older brother's friends had a VHS of something. They'd rented something out or like I got a portable TV in my room and I would stay up late, you know, on a school night with the sound turned way down. Right. Did you mark up your radio times every week to see what was coming on? Yeah, like, absolutely. They used to have, like, two, actually. I mean, it was amazing back in those days. You have to have the radio times and the TV times. You used to have two separate TV guides. But the the BBC, certainly when I was, you know, like, in my early, like, you know, the, the Hammer films late at night would be a thing. Like, they would always, like, show, like, Hammer movies or Amicus movies, like, late at night. And I would stay up and and watch them all, you know. So, but there was, but my a big part of my like, I think a big part of my horror fandom started with not being able to see the movies and sort of reading up about them to the point where, by the time I'd actually seen Dawn of the Dead, I felt like I'd read everything about it, and partly that was because I didn't have a VCR, and so I used to sometimes go around to video shops and stand in the the room and look at the boxes uh-huh. and like read the synopsis on the back. I remember like standing in like as a, you know, like when I was like 12, like reading the back cover of Body Double and trying to imagine what that film was like. <laughs> or With then, a 12 year old imagination that could have gone many places. <laughs> I, I would never have thought I would never have come up with what the movie is actually like. <laughs> <laughs> but also, as you, you know, well, the other thing that happened in the UK was in the early 80s, there was the video nasty scandal. Right. And then there were like maybe 
200 films that were like taken off the shelves, including so a lot of films that weren't in circulation for like the 80s and early 90s, including Evil Dead, including like I don't remember Dawn of the Dead seemed like it had been withdrawn. Exorcist wasn't on VHS. Um, a lot of these things were withdrawn and then, or oh, Clockwork Orange, not really a horror film, but these films were sort of banned on video. Right. And it then, was a very puritanical era in, in British government. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was something where it became a bit of a witch hunt in terms of whatever legitimate concerns started the, um, started the purge. It, it just probably through just kind of um, lack of knowledge about the subject, the kind of the vice squad essentially just kind of like took away more films than they needed to. So there were a lot of films that were like banned that didn't really need to be banned, but it did mean that those titles, and this is in a, the times before that you could maybe no, nobody was watching NTSC VHSs back then. Like, so it would just be these things that these these titles would be really illicit. And I remember I went to art college when I was 18 and, and, and in, in Dorset as well. I actually. Um, this was the Bournemouth and Poole uh, College Center of, Art and, Design. College of yeah. Art and Design, right? And weirdly, there was a guy I, I moved to Somerset when I was seven and, and then went back to Dorset to go to art college. And they they used to be the Bournemouth University used to be next door and they had a bigger library. So I used to go to the university library and just by chance, I met this guy who actually is now like a, a very like works as a, a, a cameraman for shows like X Factor in the UK, mm-hmm. um, Simon Reynolds. And uh, I think he saw me reading a horror book in the library and we started talking and it turned out that he had a massive collection of all of the banned video nasties. Oh, so you became brothers in horror. Yeah. Uh, but then I did this thing as well, like where he's like, he goes, oh, yeah, wait, you have a copy of Nightmares in a Damaged Brain? <laughs> like, and it's like, oh, you have I Spit on Your Grave on VHS? And so he used to lend me these uh, VHSs. And I don't think I had a VHS at home. But, you know, in like college libraries, they would have those viewing booths. Right. So I would take these video nasties from him. I would go into the viewing booth, but the viewing booth had a, like a, a, a like a the v- viewing booth had like glass in the door. So I'd be sitting there watching something like Nightmares in a Damaged Brain or I Spit on Your Grave, and then terrified that like a, another student would look through and see what I was watching, especially like sort of a female member of staff or like a female <laughs> student if I was watching I Spit on Your Grave. So I try and angle the TV away from the door <laughs> as much as I could. It was very strange. So then I'd be sitting at this really weird angle watching these like gnarly films. And also, you know, that thing like, I mean, you didn't have to worry about it in the States, worry about pirates. But strangely, when you're watching like a ninth generation copy yeah. of like a video nasty and, and, and the pitch quality is so bad, but that seems to kind of add to the... <laughs> Like to the, the transgressive quality yes, of exactly. it. exactly. <laughs> so all of those things, I saw them in these, like, terrible versions. And the first time I ever saw a Clockwork Orange was on, like, some kind of eighth-generation VHS copy where it just looked terrible, but it made it so much more illicit and exciting somehow. Yeah. What was it about the transgressive material that appealed so much to you? Because it sounds like you had a very happy childhood and a nurturing childhood, so it wasn't an escape from a tough life as a kid, which is so often the case. What was it about that forbidden fruit that appealed to you so much? 
Well, I mean, I you know certainly like my 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 like family upbringing was very happy. I mean, I think there's things in terms of like, uh, uh, you know, uh, in my upbringing, certainly not in terms of things that happened firsthand, but certainly the knowledge of things happening secondhand within the town and, and sort of things that I kind of touch upon in Hot Fuzz, yeah. where you're certainly aware of like sort of darker stories and, and even like sort of like dark stories in the news or things that have happened nearby where they're, Back then, maybe when the press wouldn't necessarily print the full um, details of a story, it's certainly aware of um, things in the area. And those would be things that sort of seem so dark and beyond your ken, you know? Yeah. And so I think I definitely kind of, you know, you, you have this kind of, I guess, morbid interest in that. Like, so it was something where, you know, and, and certainly just uh, in in terms of, even back then, like, sort of, I think, you know, just in terms of what you're... My, I think my parents were probably a bit more kind of, like, protective in terms of my 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 mum and dad maybe, like, a little anxious about, like, things that you should and shouldn't do as kids. And, and that's certainly kind of, like, just burned into your brain. And I, I think in that in that weird way, it's not like you're rebelling at all, but watching, like, sort of horror films just holds a fascination over you because you feel that you're you know it's 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 illicit it's transgressive there's something exciting something that your parents wouldn't embrace exactly and they were like even in terms of they understood that we were like film fans and even understood that we were interested in horror but there would be things that they would be okay with us watching and things that they wouldn't so somehow if anything had a sort of sci-fi element to it they would be more okay with us like maybe watching the thing or alien but something like Friday the 13th or Halloween, it's like, absolutely not. Too grounded, too close too, to home. Too close to home, sort of like. And, and, and also, I think the kind of things also, my mother, and we'll probably get into this when we talk about Last Night in Soho, is somebody who is very supernaturally switched on and somebody who genuinely like feels presences in old buildings and mm. is somebody who's, you know, says that she's seen ghosts. And, and I, I, I believe her. I'm not a skeptic in that sense. But on the same time, there were certain films that she felt were, like, um, too powerful. And so, to this day, my mother has still never seen The Exorcist or even The Wicker Man. There's wow. some films that she just refuses to watch. Yeah. And she just says, I don't want to watch it. It's too it's too powerful. Wow. I think it's like sort of that. So, she kind of formed an opinion of The Exorcist without ever seeing it and saying, I'll never watch that film. Now, your mother was also really into conspiracy theories, right? Yes. So tell me a little bit about that and how you kind of utilized some of her knowledge there for World's End. And Hot, well, hot Fuzz and, as well. And hot Fuzz, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that kind of came... Yes, I mean, my my mum my was very, like... I guess my both my parents, but particularly my mum, very new agey and certainly very just open to kind of all kinds of, like, stories in terms of, like, UFOs, Definitely wants to believe ghosts, like have claimed to see many ghosts, some of it, which in our own house. And then just in terms of conspiracies, like very obsessed with the Freemasons. <laughs> and and, and, and Jack the Ripper. Yeah, yeah and they, well, the Freemasons and their kind of history of like sort of corruption and murder. And, you know, the town that we grew up in, in Somerset, was a big Freemasons town. Oh. And, and I guess that's where a big part of Hot Fuzz comes from, because... My mum would sort of, we moved to this town in Somerset and it's one of those places where 
you're considered an outsider unless you have three generations in the graveyard, as they say. Wow. And so we were sort of outsiders. And my mum was just kind of sort of became sort of particularly obsessed with the idea of the Freemasons in the town. And that if things we'd been denied, like maybe the council had denied us planning permission to extend our house... It was the Masons. (laughs) Now, the funny thing is later, and this is what really started to kind of trigger parts of hot fuzz in my head, is that when I was like working as a teenager in the local supermarket, my supermarket boss at the time, um, he had a name that I I didn't call him. I didn't call the manager character in hot fuzz after this guy because he would have seemed like a jokey supermarket name because he's in a supermarket and his name was Mike Stockwell. <laughs> and it's that thing is like, you can't call the supermarket manager Mike Stockwell. That's written. It's yeah. written. It's too written. <laughs> but that was his name. Now he was really nice. I liked him, but he used to do this funny thing like on a Wednesday where he was like the world's worst Mason because the whole point with Freemasons is you're never supposed to divulge that you are a Mason or you're not supposed to divulge where the meetings happen. And he was like sort of chum. I don't know if he was a Mason or he was just chummy with him. I think he maybe he was either a Mason or he just catered for their meeting. <laughs> but he used to do this funny thing to me, like where I'd be like, I used to work as a teenager for like years as a as a, a stocker in the supermarket, and I'd be like in an aisle like stocking up like cereals or something. And Mike, the manager, would come over and he goes, he goes, gotta leave early tonight. This is a one sided conversation he's having with me. Yeah, gotta leave early tonight. Uh huh. Big Wednesday meeting, big meeting at the Star Hotel, and then he goes the Freemasons. <laughs> so it's like, so it's a strange thing. It's like, why are you bragging to me yeah. about this? It's Mason supposed thing? to be secret. Yeah. But what's funny? So I sort of knew is, oh, okay. So the Freemasons meet on a Wednesday night at the Star Hotel in the conference room. I knew this much. Way, way later, when I'm actually like doing location scouting for Hot Fuzz. You know, we go to the Star Hotel. I said, "Hey, let me let's look at the conference room." And I see the conference room at the Star Hotel, and it's like the most normal, boring, <laughs> mundane conference room you've ever seen. And then I'm thinking, did they sit around this table in their robes? How did this work? So yeah. there was a lot of that. Like my mum would would be basically sort of anything that was kind of like other. She would be she would be kind of interested in it, yeah. whether it was like the Bermuda Triangle or UFOs. Or like even like, you know, we lived near Glastonbury, which is obviously like a center of like, you know, center of ley lines. And so, right. you know, ley lines. And, and I remember my mum saying once that like, because um, after she was a teacher, she ran this kind of crystal shop in, in Glastonbury for many years called Perfect. Heartfelt Trading. I remember one time she came home and she goes, oh, some people said they saw a, uni- a unicorn on the Glastonbury tour. And I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> like, so, so. This is, you know, like, but, but I, but I'm not somebody who's, I, I, I want to believe as well. And um, you want to, but have you been exposed to? Have you seen a ghost? No, I mean, this comes into like the the movie I just made in a way. I, you know, um, I haven't, but I'd say that like through growing up with my mum and her being very sort of like open to that, and yeah. and certainly somebody, you know, like in different places, like she used to work for a couple of years there's a place called Wookie Hole Caves which is a local tourist attraction in Somerset they have two of them there's like Cheddar Caves and Wookie Hole Caves and they're these caves that like amazing like underground subterranean chambers and she worked there as a tour guide in between when she was a teacher and when she opened the shop and she would say like 
you know, divers had died in Wookiee Hole Caves. And she said that when she was in the cave, she said, oh, I, I felt the presence of, like, you know, the divers that died in those caves. Oh. And she would be very clear about it. She said, oh, I was, I was doing, like, she was saying I was giving a tour and I was talking to a group, but I could feel that somebody was standing behind me and there was nobody there. And were, I think it was the ghosts of the of the dead divers. So th- my mum is very, very open to this. And, and in our family house, part of the house that we lived in, just the front room, really, just part of the house. And then it was kind of the, the extensions were all modern. The part of the house was like from the 1600s. And wow. my mum, on two separate occasions, talked about seeing kind of... One was seeing uh, like the a vision of like a hanged man in the in the living room, mm. um, which she said, she said, I saw a hanged man in the living room. And she said, and I, I told him to piss off. <laughs> <laughs> Good he, for you, mom. And he, dis- and he disappeared. <laughs> and, you know, she's telling this to me and my brother over dinner. And then, and then later there was another thing. This is, sounds like really like sort of very uh, extremely dark, but um, that there was a, 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 a when we were doing renovations, we found like another small room that apparently previous like owners, like literally like you know a long decades or maybe even a century before, had had a kind of like a child that was ill that that they in those times that they, you know, was. I guess considered like a public shame. Right, locked this, him away. Exactly, and mm. this child sort of was very ill and died in this room. Ooh. And and they did find like the sort of like there was kind of like a sort of a, a a second room that they found when they were doing renovations. And so my mum sort of looked into the history of the house and found out about this story, but then sort of had had dreams about this kid and also said that the kid had been. I remember like, it's funny. My mum watched last night in Soho, the other day. And I just, I really wanted to know what she thought of it. Because in in some ways, the character of Eloise is slightly sort of based on her. Interesting. And, uh, which is Thomas and Mackenzie's part in the film. Yeah. And my mum says, she goes, well, you remember when the the child in our our house was haunting you? And I was, I was at lunch with my brother and I said, well, what was that story again? (laughs) She goes, do you remember like when, like you kept thinking that somebody was calling you and you came downstairs and you say, did you want me? I said, I didn't say anything. And like, so somebody kept calling your name. He goes, yeah, I think that was the ghost of the of the child in the house. I go, right, of course, yes. So it's all this. <laughs> do you remember it? I do. Actually, when she reminded me, I did remember it. Ooh. But it's that thing where, I, I mean, as a young horror fan, I guess there was part of me that was envious that my mum, like, had seen or claimed to see ghosts, but that I hadn't. Damn. Yeah. But in a similar way as well, and this speaks to the movie as well, it's in terms of like, what you would talk about within a family. And this is something that comes up in the, one of the first scenes of the movie with Rita Tushingham talking to Thomas and Mackenzie about her gift. It's something that they can talk about within the family. But it's like, say that my, if my mum would talk to me and my brother about stuff like that, I wouldn't necessarily go to school next day mm-hmm. and tell my friends, hey, my mum saw like a hangman in the living room. Uh-huh. Because even then as a sort of child, you're sort of aware of what other people might think. Right. And, You're afraid and, of being mocked, and yeah, yeah, and and afraid of what they what they might think. I mean, I believe my mother, and like sort of, and I and I still do. But also, you then think like, in, especially in a school situation, is like, what would they think? So it's something that you kind of just keep to yourself in a way. So I guess that was like something that has a sort of major influence on Last Night in Soho, in, in a sense of like 
I, I certainly kind of believe people who feel presences and whether it's something where if you're thinking about the more traditional idea of a ghost of being like a soul left behind in torment or you know the what we call like almost like the the stone tape theory based on that you know that classic Nigel Neal TV movie right the idea of psychic residue left behind by an event mm-hmm. and I certainly believe you know if you're if you're saying that like if there's a murder has happened in a room is is something left behind right like in terms of you know psychically or physically or spiritually the, or the, the echo of an event yeah like yeah. I believe that because I, you know, and, and I, and I, so, and obviously in London where the buildings are hundreds of year, years old, there's a lot of time to think about that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I've made more than one ghost story, The Shining and others like that, but I'm dying to have the experience like you. I've not been able to see one close up, except maybe you did as a kid. But I, I, wanna... I, I apparently I heard one. Yeah. I want to get into Last Night in Soho in in detail, but I don't want to skip over too much of what is really kind of an amazing life. You started making short films very early on uh, during Bournemouth College, I guess, um, or even before. It was a little bit before that, actually. Yeah. And then you made your your first feature-length film, A Fistful of Fingers. Tell me about that. I haven't seen Fistful of Fingers. I mean, it's... it's, It actually got released. It did. It got released at, like... uh, I wouldn't say in cinemas, in cinema. It was in one screen in London. The Prince Charles Cinema, actually, in London wow. showed it in 1995. I mean, just to lead up to that very briefly. So, yeah, I, I started making amateur films when I was, like, 15. Um, my parents had kind of done, like, a joint birthday and Christmas present for me and my brother. So this is covering, like, two birthdays and two Christmases. <laughs> they got sort of like a second-hand Super 8 camera. Um because in there, so they were very encouraging in terms of me and my brother going into sort of arts, and because they knew we were both like movie mad, they got us a, a second-hand cine camera, like a Super 8 camera, and I immediately started making little funny shorts with my school friends, you know. And actually, then it's not like I don't come from a rich background at all, so you know, I had to. The Saturday job was basically to pay for the Super 8 cartridges because <laughs> yes. they're not cheap. And the developing. Yeah, and the developing. <laughs> it ain't cheap. And like you have to, back in those days, you had to send it off to Germany to oh, get wow. it kind of like sort of, I think in the in the UK, remember you had to send the Kodak sort of Super 8 uh, like reels to Germany and back. I did it. It was 8 millimeter before Super 8. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was how I sort of basically started. And that turned into leading up to the Fist of Fingers is that I... Still, when I was at school in in Somerset, at like a you know um, secondary comprehensive, um, you know like equivalent of state school, like uh, when I was seventeen, I entered this competition on the BBC uh, for going. Uh, it's, it's a kids show called Going Live, and you know Comic Relief, the charity, they were doing a thing where they were like make a video about one of our causes. So I made this animation film on my Super 8 camera in my bedroom. Um, and won the competition mm. on TV. So if you look on the internet, you can find a 17-year-old me on, on this kind of Saturday morning kids show. <laughs> and I won a video camera. So when wow. I got the video camera, then it was really off to the races. It's like, because I wouldn't have been able to afford a video camera, but I had this little high 8 camera. And then I started making longer films, like first at sixth form college, then at art college. And one of them was a video version of Fistful of Fingers, like a 60-minute version, super, super, super minus low budget. (laughs) And then 
because I kept making these things through art college, like I made a cop film called Dead Right, which is on the Hot Fuzz Blu-ray, and I made a superhero film called Carbolic Soap. At a certain point, by the end of art college, uh, and I, I hadn't got into the kind of film school that I wanted to get into, I'd sort of been turned down by all of the film schools that I would apply to. Mm-hmm. I just thought, sort of spurred on by the stories of like Sam Raimi and Peter Jackson with like Bad Taste and the Evil Dead, I was like, I gotta make like a low budget film. And so, off the back of these kind of things that I'd had on TV and, you know, showing these video amateur sort of films at festivals. I managed to get like a local businessman in in well Somerset, the the local newspaper editor, in fact, you know, liked what I'd been doing and gave us like eleven thousand pounds to make a feature. Wow! So we shot like Fistful of Fingers. The shooting budget was like eleven grand, and we shot essentially like a seventy-five minute feature. <laughs> we had to raise like another ten grand to kind of finish it. But it was still like at the end of it, it the whole thing cost like twenty one thousand. And it is a very low budget film. And and there's a reason that you haven't seen it because that I, I haven't I'm not always in a rush to show it to people. <laughs> <laughs> but you were quite a prodigy. You things started for you at a very young age. I mean, what were you, twenty one, twenty two when Matt Lucas and uh, David Williams from Little Britain saw what you'd done and wanted you to work with them. Yeah, I was 21. Yeah. I, I, they, they weirdly were the first people in the... When I moved to... Lo- I moved to London to edit Fistful of Fingers. And I was initially like sleeping on my brother's floor because <laughs> he'd, he'd gone a year before me to work at Ealing Studios in the model making department at the wow. special effects company. So he worked on miniatures. And then I was editing Fistful of Fingers. Bizarrely, I was editing at Pinewood Studios, but not... Um, not officially. <laughs> Somebody in the Spielberg pro- style when yeah. he was sixteen. No, seriously. Yeah. We, yeah. me, and the editor. The edi- I brought the editor from art college, Giles Harding, and we sort of didn't officially have an edit suite. But somebody at the post production, the, the the producer of the movie had used to work in the post production department, and he knew of this kind of like it wasn't even an edit suite. It was basically like a like a closet that we could basically just steal like a steam back and like wow. edit the movie. So we were at Pinewood, but here's the thing. Yeah, I was it, working at Pinewood, yeah. <laughs> but imagine like you're at Pinewood, like home of the Bonds and everything. And like, I had no money. Like, so I could sort of just about afford to get a tube and a bus to get to Pinewood. But when we got there, I could not, I did not have any money for lunch. So we'd like literally like have like an apple a day or like maybe some chips. And that was about it. And my editor, Giles, he didn't have anywhere to stay in London. So he slept in that closet (laughs) and he used to, it was like the kind of great escape or something. It's like, he goes at nine o'clock, like when the security guard is walking around locking up, he had to be in the edit with lights off and he would like read like a talk <laughs> he would read a book by a torch and he would maybe have a little portable radio and he would listen to like radio four like turned way down and he'd sleep there and he'd kind of like you come back in the morning and, and you can imagine like being in a tiny edit where the editor has been sleeping there and, and we had no I, I was the assistant editor on the movie because we couldn't afford an assistant editor so i sort of became the assistant editor on my own movie <laughs> So so basically, through that process, even before the film had come out, I'd met Matt Lucas and David Walliams because he was doing stand-up and I happened to see him doing stand-up and introduce myself. And I think at that point I was gonna, I was hoping to do another movie straight away after Fistful called Crawl, which bizarrely sort of becomes like the opening of The World's End in a strange way. But, um, you know, Fistful of Fingers came out 
in like November 1995 and they were just about to do their first TV show on the Paramount Comedy Channel. This was Mash and Peas? Yes. And so they asked me to be the director. And so I was like 21 directing TV for the first time. You and Steven Spielberg, again, we have this uh, similarity here. You both were directing people on television at 21. I mean, when I look back at it, it's like it it was so... I mean, I guess that Matt and Dave were young as well. Like Matt was 21 and Dave was 23. Mm. And it was sort of... I think I, I remember several points to even doing that first show sort of amazed that I was being paid to do it. <laughs> like, it just felt like, wait, so I mean, it was a very silly comedy show, like, really, really silly. And um, I really enjoyed doing it. But it was just I, I sort of I would definitely be very aware of like how crazy is this is that I'm like directing this comedy show at 21 at 21. And then you did a bunch of other episodes of, of BBC comedies before you hooked into spaced, which was a fateful combination of talents with you and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. So tell me how that came together because you were hired to direct that you, you didn't originally write uh, you weren't brought on board. There was already a pilot script, or how did that come to be? Not quite. No, what had happened was one of the shows that I'd done after Mash and Peas was this show uh, on the Paramount Comedy Channel called Asylum, which um, me and David Walliams actually ended up rewriting, and it included in the cast Simon Pegg, Jessica Hines, uh, Julian Barrett, Bill Bailey, lots of people who are about to get really big. And Simon and Jessica who knew each other separately anyway, was so good in the show together that one of the producers said, those those two should make a sitcom. So they basically started writing Spaced, Jessica Hines and Simon Pegg. And because I'd done Asylum, they'd sort of pegged me as a director very early and said, oh, we want Edgar to direct it. So we all went off on our separate ways and I went to the BBC and did a bunch of other shows, including like... Um, the French and Saunders Christmas special, which I did in 1998. Wow. Which was you know, probably one of the highest rated, probably the highest rated TV thing I ever did. Because wow. those shows used to get like 10 million viewers. Um, but all this time, like Simon and Jess were writing space. So then in early 99, we were making the show and we actually didn't do a pilot for that show. It's crazy. Because it was like a low budget show. Channel 4 just said, Channel 4 is one of the commercial networks in the UK. They just said, uh, oh yeah, just do... Um, just go straight ahead and like make it. And they gave it, so they, we made seven episodes with no pilot. And I guess if that show, if you've seen it, it's pretty like, you know, kind of um, idiosyncratic and it stylized. Is. And it is quirky, but it's, it's very cinematic in ways that yeah. were not the usual form in TV sitcom. Well, I think in a way, because it was so low budget and maybe they, like, there was no expectations of it whatsoever, <laughs> we had nobody like standing over our shoulder mm. at all. They sort of kind of slightly left to our own devices. and Let the kids handle it. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> if it wasn't a big budget show and it was going to be on like Friday. But then, you know, when it was came out, like, you know, it wasn't like it was a big like ratings hit in as big as Little Britain or The Office, but it was like a a big cult hit and you know you could it was also around the time when the internet certainly kind of forums were really starting and by the third episode of space somebody had done like a spaced website this guy called nick lee and we all thought that was like i mean now that's kind of that happens within seconds but at the time it's like wow there's a spaced website (laughs) it's only on episode three so 
so you know i did two series of that with um simon and jessica and and nick frost was also that was his first screen role um and, and by the end of the second series i was very proud of the space but i was getting kind of burnt out because i'd directed every episode right um, well it was time for you to do a movie yeah i mean i think so sort of by this point it was fistful of fingers had like done what it had done and you know it wasn't something i was like uh you know super proud of but it but it had got me a break in the industry it you know like i got an agent out of fistful of fingers matt lucas and david asked me to direct Mac, mash and peas on the back of it but i definitely wanted to get back into doing films and and I think sort of because space, like you said, it's kind of got a very cinematic style. I really felt like I wanted to sort of take what I'd done in that show to the big screen. But um, and I and I there's an episode in space. Um, it's episode three of the first series where Simon fights zombies in the flat. He's been staying up all night playing Resident Evil three and taking speed and he starts to hallucinate <laughs> zombies and we had so much fun shooting that sequence it was i think it was the last day of the shoot or maybe it was the last day of the sort of the stage part of the shoot that i remember getting in a cab with simon and we were going to go back to his place and we were in a mini cab together and i said we should we should just do a whole movie like we should do it like a like a zombie movie the whole thing me and simon had bonded over our love of dawn of the dead yeah and this was at a time when I hadn't really met too many people at that time who'd even seen it. Like, it was unavailable on video in the UK for a long time. But And it was weird that Resident Evil, the game, had sort of inspired a lot of, like, love for Romero again. Mm. And I remember, like, talking to Simon about George Romero and, like, Dawn of the Dead in depth. So we did this episode of Space of the Zombies. I remember saying in the car, we should do a whole movie of this. And Simon was like, well, what, what would it be? And we were trying to at first find... the when you were saying about horror comedies it's like what's the angle that we can do that's different from say evil dead 2 or peter jackson's brain dead what can we do that's different and and what we eventually came up with was the idea and what if you did a horror comedy but it was much more naturalistic in a way yes so it's like that so and in a similar way like i think this is one of the great things about american wealth in london is like the premise is scary the scenes are scary but what's funny is the characters reactions and that the characters themselves is, have funny, natural reactions to what's happening. And in a way, like a gallows humor, that in a very tense situation, you have a tendency to kind of like make jokes because you're shit scared. <laughs> yes. And in a way, so w- when we were writing Shaun of the Dead, the basic, our basic rules for ourselves were like, the zombies are not funny. The threat is real. Like people are really going to die. But like we happen to be following these two characters who are like, who are funny and, and oblivious, and, yeah, and <laughs> oblivious to it, and and their interactions with their friends and family are like yeah. sort of funny. So and also that British sensibility of um, you know keep calm and carry on, just that sort of like, <laughs> not, you know, like not reacting, you know, in a, in a you know, kind of keeping a stiff upper lip. I mean, particularly in the scene with like Penelope Wilton and Bill Nye, the way you see like his mum and stepdad react to the zombie crisis, <laughs> which is not dissimilar to how a lot of Brits reacting to the pandemic. Like the, the you know, Bill Nye has been bitten. He goes, uh, he goes, I ran it under a cold tap. Like, <laughs> as if that's enough. But, but one of our things that we, one thing that we really like uh, decided in this movie was we wanted no screaming. 
we felt that some horror comedies were too shrill. Oh, interesting. I'm not. I don't want to. I don't want to bad mouth a beloved cult classic because everybody's like, "What? You don't like that movie?" So I, I, I don't even say it out loud. But there's one movie that like I like the first like third of it, and then it like devolves into a lot of screaming, and I sort of just felt like, "Oh, go ahead and name it." Well, <laughs> this is gonna be heresy. People are gonna hate me. I don't love Return of the Living Dead as much as some other people. Ah. And I'll say this. I love the first half an hour. Yeah. Like the stuff with James Caron at the start of the movie. Oh, oh It's hilarious. James Caron, right? Yeah. 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 And Clue Gulliger, right? Clue Gulliger yeah. and Tom. That Matthews. stuff yeah. is just great. Yeah. And then, like, I think, like, the second half where there's a lot of, like, people screaming at each other is like, I could take it or leave it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just, there was something where I just felt like, I wonder if we could do, you know, if do something that in this realm... And again, listen, I'm not saying people who love Return of the Living Dead, I mean, I, 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 I get it. And I, I, it's, I'm not saying anything. I'm not casting any aspersions on a horror podcast. Absolutely. About a beloved not. cult classic. Yes. However, we sort of thought, let's go the other way. So it's just kind of like that you, you, you have these responses to the horror, which are like more deadpan, but come out of a naturalism. So it's almost well, like quite the, civil. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sort of like one of the pitches to like when we originally set up with film four, we were sort of saying like, imagine if like Mike Lee made a zombie film. <laughs> so it was like, imagine like life is sweet meets yes. Dawn of the Dead. What would wow. that film be like? Yeah. And so that was one of the sort of the kind of, we, we had this kind of rules for ourselves is like, let's just not have like screaming. Let's kind of like sort of explore every other reaction to what's going on except screaming. Brilliant. Brilliant. And and it turned out to be a classic. Um, and absolutely one of the best examples of a successful comedy horror film. And I saw it at, at film festival when it came out, when it was doing those rounds. And it it was the talk of every one of the festivals. Have you seen Shaun of the Dead? And, uh, you know, that was great. Um, and it started this relationship, a professional relationship, continued the relationship with, with Simon and Nick. And then there's the Flavors of Cornetto trilogy, uh, Hot Fuzz and World's End. Um, but following that, those were all original things that you created. Suddenly, you get involved in um, Scott Pilgrim, which was an assignment that came your way based on a graphic novel. So suddenly you're in the world of a $80 million movie uh, after an $8 million Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz. Um, tell me about what that felt like, that change in going into such a, a, a rise in scale of the production and it not being something that came from your own imagination originally. Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird. I look back on it now like... It's funny, like, last year... Actually, no, this year, they, when they released the sort of Dolby Cinema version of Scott Pilgrim, uh, there was a screening of it in London, and I went with Naira Park, my producer, and Bill Pope, the cinematographer, who mm. happened to be in London, and we watched it together. And, like, all I could say afterwards when I watched it, I was saying, they would never make that film now, but also they probably like they didn't make that film back then either. <laughs> <laughs> and it's that funny thing is, like... <clears throat> It is in terms of it was a big jump in budget, but it was something, I guess, that because it was within Universal and it was something where they brought the book to me, but I really vibed with the book. So right, and you wrote it. The I wrote the screenplay yeah. with Michael Bacall based on Brian Lee O'Malley's um, graphic novels. Um, but I guess it was it was it, it was it was 
I mean, the thing I will say about the movie, and it's probably as evidenced by the movie itself, like they let they let me make my movie, which is sort of given like that kind of it was a studio movie and it was on a bigger budget than Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. But it's not like it was massively compromised. Right. It, was, it, it feels was... like an Edgar Wright movie. And yeah. there's that cinematic kineticism and the musical uh, power behind it. And, and we'll get into that, too, because music is a hugely important part of, of your work in cinema, particularly in Baby Driver and now in Last Night in yeah. Soho. And I want to get into that as well. I, th- I think with Scott Pilgrim, I'm really proud of the movie. I think the thing was is that it was... Um, it was more as a sort of just a challenge to how to sell it or how to get, how to kind of get, I mean, Michael Moses, who was the head of marketing at the time was like, it was his like favorite universal film he'd ever worked on. Mm. But for both of us, there was something where you, you had to kind of find a way to kind of like sell it to a general audience. And, and it's strange in a way because it kind of very quickly, you know, and thankfully became like a, a cult movie and like there's a, a younger audience that loved that movie that never saw it at the cinema at the time. But but when we were sort of getting the movie out there, it was difficult to kind of find how to kind of like get that audience to come see it. It's just kind of a, you know, but that that is the case with a lot of, you know, movies that are sort of trying to do something a bit different is yeah. that like, you know, it's like people now that love the movie might not be able to imagine that like, you know, that, of how it was sort of received at the time, but it just kind of came out in a time where it sort of didn't really look like anything else. Yeah. And I'm sure some people in a cinema saw the trailer and was like, "What is that movie?" <laughs> like, it's like to me, know. it was, "What is that movie?" <laughs> okay, yeah, I want to see that. That's the nice response. And it's such a good film, and it it it's not one of the ones mentioned at the top of your canon of films. You know, mainly because it did not have that that financial blockbuster response that everybody was hoping for. I mean, I, I, I feel very I feel very fortunate that in my movies, like, and I've noticed this with fans that like sort of like people like it, like it, it, with the exception of Fist for the Fingers, <laughs> there's like every one of my movies, somebody says, that's your best movie. Oh, like, and, and particularly when people say it about Scott Pilgrim or The World's End, you know, like sort of I'm always like happy if so, because I kind of think there's no right or wrong answer to that. No. Whenever people ask you saying, what's your favorite film that you've made? They're saying, I could I could never answer that question. They're and in the same way that like, if any, you know, this is like if anybody says to you that like something that you've done is their favorite movie. You're not going to say, you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You very politely say thank you. Yeah, you say thank you. And it's like, if anybody takes anything away from it, like, great. So, you know, I mean, the the great thing, the the, the really nice thing, and this is as evidenced by what's happened since, is that the best email that I got about Scott Pilgrim, because the, the weekend it came out, it like opened at number five and like, you know, I, I deliberately stayed away from reading the trades about box office reports and thinking mm. like there's nothing to be gained from reading these this <laughs> yeah. weekend, especially when you're still promoting the movie. Yeah, but especially. Then Michael Moses sent me this email, which is one of the nicest emails I've ever got like in film. He sent this email on the Monday morning and all it said is goes, years, not days. Ah. And it's like the sweetest email that I've ever got. And they, as ever, this is what's funny is that it goes around in circles. It's like literally like 10 years later. Like we were chatting about something, and uh, and I, you know, we're talking about is there anything to do with the tenth anniversary of the movie? And uh, and he said, let me get back to you on that. And he, and he went to Dolby, and they said, oh, Dolby Cinema wants to reversion the movie and, and wow. re-release it in cinemas. Wow. So I was like, okay, well, 
How often does that happen? How often does that happen? Especially with a film that, like, on on paper might be considered a financial disappointment. To get really released at the cinema is, like, rare. So I feel very, very grateful about that. And to revive it in such a vibrant way with Dolby Cinema. No, I was... I know. I'm very happy about that. Well... You spent 10 years working on Ant-Man and never came to fruition under your direction. You're still credited as a screenwriter uh, on the film and the like. But tell me about that process, why it lasted so long. What were the frustrations uh, that led to finally you saying, look, I can't do this anymore? Well, I mean, timeline-wise, within that, I think it was more like eight years maybe but either way, I mean, one of the things is I went off and did other movies. Well, there's so, that. There, yeah. so in that time, I did make Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim, and The World's End. Well, there you go, three movies over eight years. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true that I was like developing the script that early and and sort of doing the first draft of the script before the MCU even existed, really. So mm. I was kind of like when I first met Kevin Feige, he was like sort of like, you know, Ari's like, you know, kind of assistant essentially. I guess by the time it actually came to actually making it or coming up to make it, they had so established their brand and their continuity, not just in terms of the movies, but also that the way that they worked, that I guess the sort of the, the where it was eventually, you know, people say creative differences is like a sort of a bullshit kind of like sort of right. cover-up phrase. But in this case, it really was creative differences. Well, in they wanted of... to make a Marvel Universe movie and you wanted to make something that would fit that but would be a, an expression of your cinematic personality. Yeah. I th- Yeah, I think that's the... That, I mean, I think that is the, the, the honest answer to it as I think by the time we came to make it, like what me and Joe Cornish had written did not really fit into exactly what they were doing with the other movies Mm -hmm. and there was a point where i started to feel like is the baby being thrown out with the bathwater just in terms of my version so when it came to it and you know they wanted to kind of basically get somebody else to do a draft that was something that was already like kind of like a line that I was afraid to cross in terms of like, ah, you know, cause I've written and directed everything I've done. And like, now I'm going to be directing a draft by somebody else. I don't know how I feel about that, mm. but I did say, let me, well, let me read the draft. I didn't like, walk off in a half at that point. I just said, let me read the draft. And then when I eventually did read the draft, I felt like, you know what, this is time to say goodbye. So it was actually, I mean, I feel like sort of people that imagine that like it was, um, some real acrimony but it was actually very civil yeah. <laughs> and in fact i've actually kind of like made up with not that we when i say i've made up with kevin feige we never actually like fell out in terms of there was never even any raised voices particularly it just sounds like you agreed to disagree yeah and it was something i just felt like this is like not really the version of it that i want to make and so if i ever did one of these movies i'd want to go into it feeling very sure of what I was making and, and be able to sort of make my take on it. So I have no regrets about walking away whatsoever. And I was, you know, happy that I still got a screenwriting credit. I wasn't, to be honest, that wasn't necessarily like, you know, um, a, a, like a, a done deal. Like, so that was something that kind of was a pleasant know, surprise and added bonus. Well, and that's speak- the thing when people come up to me in the street and say, I have two answers, like, for when people come to the street. If people say, like, um, hey, I really love Ant-Man, I say, oh, I was just a writer on that. 
And if people say like, oh, I'm so bummed that you didn't direct Ant-Man, I said, don't worry, I still get the writing residual. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my two answers to two different kinds of fans. Well, speaking of Edgar And by Wright, the way, yeah. literally like the other day, it's like, it's to show there's no, I literally saw like, like Paul Rudd and one of the producers <laughs> of the third Ant-Man like at a brunch the other day. And it's like, it's all like totally fine. It's like, you know, I have no, I have no regrets about walking away. And I, I my main, the, my, my point of pride with it. And I, by the way, I've never seen the movie. That's the other thing is I thought, oh, wow. you know, I never watched the movie because then when people ask me what I think, I don't have to give a diplomatic answer. <laughs> yeah. I could just say, I've never actually never seen, seen it. <laughs> I've never actually seen a film that I'm credited as a producer and a writer on. But I will say this is that the one thing I'm happy about is I got to cast my friend Paul Rudd in the movie. That's so, great. and I know that like, and I weirdly, I've seen him in the other installments and I know he's really funny and, and charming and exactly what I thought he would be. So I'm thinking, well, if my one contribution is that I got my, my friend Paul to be kind of an action star, then great. And he's the best thing about it, you know? I mean, he's great. He's fantastic. But let's speak a little more about Edgar Wright's screenwriter, the screenwriter, because the first guy to hire me as a screenwriter was Steven Spielberg. You were hired by Steven Spielberg to work on the Tantan script. So oh, I thought you pronounced it correctly. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about that experience and how that came about. Um, it was, um, I think initially, like, they wanted, um, I think it was a combination of Steven and Kathy and also Peter and Fran and Philippa because they were working on it, Peter Jackson and... and um, Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens. Um, initially, they wanted me and Simon to do a rewrite. Stephen mm. Moffat had written four drafts, and then Stephen Moffat had other stuff to do. He couldn't kind of like stay on the movie, so it wasn't like he was let go. I think he he wanted to go back to London and write Doctor Who. <laughs> um, yeah. um, so we were asked to come in and sort of take over, and but Simon wasn't really available. Simon, I think, was shooting Mission Impossible or something, so he he didn't really have any time to write it. So I suggested Joe Cornish because I'd written, by that point, I'd written the first couple of drafts of Ant-Man with Joe Cornish. And also Joe was like a massive tantan, as you say, yeah. uh, nut. And it was like, so I just said, I know, like, so it was an amazing thing. It was like Joe at this point had not had a published screenplay. Um, but so then he, suddenly he's in the room with like, Steven Spielberg and Kathy Kennedy and Peter and Fran and like Joe is like one of the smartest guys around in film so it's just like to see him just like you know hold his own nice was just amazing and With like the and kings like, of the jungle yeah, yeah and like just you know but they also like so we came to the we came to the kind of um you know what we sort of tried to do was kind of um I only worked on a couple of drafts on it and it was and it was really fun and it was really great working with Stephen because, like, you know, he's such a sort of a encouraging director to write for because he kind of vibes off, like, ideas and, you know. And he throws just, out just tons yeah. of them, good, bad, or indifferent. And, and you can help guide that with him. Yeah, I mean, it was... I think the thing that we were sort of wanted to do is, like, sort of just kind of bring, like, it to the bring the spirit of the books in and part of that was a bit of like the internal momentum of the comics so i went you know like the the finished thing then i think because um, me and joe shared credit with Stephen moffat um you know what we did was we were sort of trying to kind of like sort of um 
bring in the pace of the books and and have it kind of have that snap because the great thing about the Hergé books is like every page ends with like a a lean forward moment mm-hmm. you know it's like the bottom the bottom right panel is something happens that makes you want to turn the page they kind of like amazingly constructed those books because every bottom right panel of every page is something that makes you want to turn that page yeah. and it's really so we were sort of trying to bring that to it my one regret of the Tintin process is that me and Joe had so much fun when we were writing um, that we used to kind of uh, do all the voices uh-huh. and so when we were like writing it would be almost like doing a radio play because we'd be constantly like talking like Tintin like this and like come on Snowy and like doing the voices all the time and it would have been the most embarrassing thing to do but we should have done it as we should have like performed it for Stephen because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of thought like it was that thing is like we'd written it and we knew how it sounded in our heads and I, I think if I, I would have gone back and said Stephen this is going to sound really weird but could me and Joe like read you the script <laughs> Because it was something, and also Joe's like, you know, he's a he's a funny actor as well. So well, we he might have gone for it. I mean, not 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 to play the parts. No, no, just to get the tone to, across. To read to him. Just to get the tone across. But it's an entirely different set of responsibilities to be a writer who was never going to be a director on this project. How did that feel? I mean, this was the only I, time you'd done that. I mean, basically, who's going to say no to Steven Spielberg? Exactly. <laughs> so when he came, I had no plans to write for other people, but when he comes calling. I, I yeah I was like I know I I want to I want to help you I want to help you know I wasn't actually there for the shoot that was the sad thing is that I did I did basically a two or three drafts of it I think maybe it was like two drafts but then I went off to do Scott Pilgrim right. so Joe stayed on the shoot and I wasn't I wasn't there I was there for the test shoot but I actually missed the entire um, shoot of the movie because I was doing Scott Pilgrim at the same time. Well, I'm fascinated with Baby Driver because suddenly your your films have always been music centric. They've always had really great soundtracks and like, but this is choreographing action sequences to the music rather than the other way around, and it's an amazing rat-a-tat ballet of of energy and kineticism. So, tell me about the conception of that and how you pitched that movie because it's quite a unique take on the action film. The pit, the pitching of it was tricky because it was like, you know, I'm sure you you know you know this as a writer. If you're writing for something that you're going to direct, the tricky thing is that you're 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 essentially sort of trying to communicate on the page, in words, what something will look and sound like, yeah. and that's kind of tricky. Dialogue is a different thing because like on the page is like dialogue is is you know you're communicating character and story through words but when you're trying to communicate what the visuals and the sound is going to be like that's kind of tougher and so I wrote the script on my own and it was definitely the most difficult script to write because I had a real vision of what it would look and sound like and then getting that onto the page was the tricky bit but to speak to what you're saying is what I what I did is that I I wrote the scenes to the music so I would sort of like have the music in mind and I would basically like kind of break down the song and sort of work it out like each like scene is a little mini opera in terms of like this this shot goes with this bit of the music this shot goes with this bit of the music this is what happens here at this kind of section weirdly enough how i met stephen price who's been the composer on the last three movies and was the music editor on scott pilgrim i'd met him three years before because i was first trying to write baby driver as far back as 2007 i don't read music and i don't play an instrument but I had some of the, the songs in mind and I asked my line producer at the time saying, hey, I need like a music editor who could 
break down the songs for me and explain them to me in musical terminology and that was Stephen Price wow and we sat there and literally so I have these kind of like <laughs> like spreadsheets of like songs like Bell Bottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion <laughs> like broken down or like tequila you know broken down into kind of like the sort of the bars and the instrumentation and so those things were really helpful to me because then when I was writing the script I could like I knew the sort of the exact timings and when different sections of the music were going to happen. So did you show graphics or graphs or anything to the people when you were pitching the movie? Or did you sit in the room and pitch it before you gave them the script? Um, it was... Um, it was... So basically, like, we had the script and then, you know, the music to go with it. And, and it was just something where... You wrote the, spe- the, the script on spec? I never wrote a treatment for it, I don't remember. I think I wrote it for... Um, I know I wrote it for working title, but you know because working title I've done everything with. I'm in the the nice position of you know working with the same producers is that they'll take something on like sort of a, a pitch that isn't written down. So I right. kind of I think I told them what the basic premise of it was, but I don't remember there ever being a treatment particularly. It was more like this is the basic idea and this is what I want to write. And then I went off and wrote it. But then then the thing after that is then still getting people to, to, to understand exactly what it would be like tonally. And I think I had something in the, in the script. The first like page said something. This is a this is a film that is much about what you're hearing as what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And sound is so important. So we made we had all the songs to go with the script. And one of the things that we did very early on was with Paul Matchless, my editor, and also this great DJ called Ozzy Misu, we had taken the songs and we had dubbed sound effects into them. So the sort of the car chases, or rather the songs of the car chase also had car effects on them. Wow. So you could sort of listen to it and you go, oh, okay. So it wasn't just a song. I get what you're after, yeah. Yeah. And then beyond that, we also did a table read in like 2011, like way before we made the movie. And we recorded the table read. And then me and Paul Matchless, my editor, edited the dialogue into the songs. Oh, my God. So sometimes you have this thing of like saying, like, hey, this has got like dialogue in it as well. So you kind of have the song and the effects and sometimes the lines. And so then you're sort of putting together a package. So you've got this script and it's like, but you've got this like the soundtrack with actors saying the lines as well. So I was just trying everything to get it across. And it was still... After, like, I left Ant-Man, you know, um, Universal actually passed on the movie. Hmm. Like, I did two drafts with Universal. They passed on it. And, and it ended up at Sony, right? Yeah. And like, yeah. It, so Sony and MRC were both competing over it, and then they decided to go halfway and make the movie. But still then, the next year was, like, still a matter of, like... Um, getting a green light it sort of took like a year after that to sort of actually get the green light and that was partly getting the cast together and making sure that we could shoot it in somewhere that would be cost effective and all of those things that go up to kind of so i i, I was particular and i was really feeling the pressure at that point because obviously after you know like leaving the uh the other film the, 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 and putting all your chips on Baby Driver is like, oh my god, I better get a green light, otherwise, ah, oh, gonna be so embarrassed. So yeah, I really, it was that was that was actually probably the most like stressful was that sort of year afterwards of like mm. sort of like really like hoping that this other film would come through, you know. Well, the whole music experience seems to have been inspirational to you because 
with Last Night in Soho, it's one of the driving forces in what turns into be no spoilers, but a ghost story, as you've uh, hinted at earlier. Um, but it also has this wonderful sense of nostalgia of a time that happened before you were born, a time I remember from my childhood and songs that are deeply ingrained into my psyche. How are you so comfortable in a, in a period? Is it through movies and, and music that took place before you were around? It's a combination of things, I think. I mean, I think first and foremost, um, I was born in 1974, but um, it would be music initially because my parents uh, had like a, a, a slim record collection. It would be basically one record box uh-huh. and they would be albums from like 1964 to like the early 70s. Well, wow. so who were some of the artists that they had well they had like it was strange my, my parents recollection was 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 quite sort of baffling to me because they would have lots of great albums and then some major omissions like so they'd have the first rolling stones album but none of the other ones <laughs> and then they'd have the beatles albums from rubber soul onwards right through to let it be but missing revolver oh. which you know some oh. consider the best of them all yeah yeah so and, and then other things like sort of like Motown Chartbusters Volume Three and like <laughs> Otis Sings Blue and uh, Simon and Garfunkel and um, you know uh, like Genesis um, yeah. uh, you know and um, so so basically you know in in the, in the time when you know I like I said my parents like worked kind of like a lot I was left in the house a lot and um, I don't remember when I was growing up. I don't remember my parents ever playing those records. Right. I I feel like the sort of the the year that they stopped buying albums was the same year my brother was born, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't remember them ever playing the albums. So I would just kind of like basic, not dissimilar to what happens at the start of last night in Soho. Eloise taking her grandmother's records. I would just listen to these records all the time, and I would form my perception of the decade through the albums and the photos in the sleeves and stuff. And, and the movies themselves, too. You've got Rita Tushingham, you've got Terrence Stamp, and Diana Rigg's final performance. I mean, Diana Rigg in The Avengers is one of the most iconic characters of the 60s worldwide. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly in terms of like my, my connection with the decade, otherwise, The Avengers, like a 60s show, but would be repeated on TV in the 80s. So I was like in love with Emma Peel, like everybody else. And (laughs) the thinking man's sex symbol. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, and, and, and also, I guess also then, you know, like a growing obsession with the 60s. Obviously, the music was the jumping off point, but then through like sort of cinema and TV and art and fashion. And then again, like beyond that, then. Just especially through reading about music, I think you kind of read so much about like London in the mid sixties and like particularly Soho. And then when I moved to like London in nineteen ninety four, you know Soho is an area which you know for people who've never been to London, it's like a square mile right in the middle of like London, in between like Theatreland and Oxford Street, the shopping district. But like a law unto itself in terms of the center of show business, like the center of the film and TV industry, the center of where Hammer uh, films were based and every other like film company, um, you know, and music, you know, the sort of where the birth of rock and roll was in the sort of two eyes coffee shop and crime and crime. 
and the sex industry and the sex industry like the underworld which so are interlinked interlinked and also like coexisting with the heights of show business i think that's the thing about soho that's like very strange and to be honest hasn't entirely gone away even as soho, soho gets massively gentrified that that kind of darker side is still there and sort of still there just in plain sight and still like coexists with like you know like the groucho club which is probably the most you know along with soho house the most famous members club in london is directly opposite a brothel like mm-hmm. sort of um in soho still to this day and so it's something where it's not what it was in the 60s it's not even what it is like in the 90s when i first moved to london the red light area was so much bigger and so much more in your face and like because i used to work around there like everything that i've edited has always been in soho it was just something where you just walk out into the streets and it's right there and also still to this day now like it's a place where after midnight the, there's like an energy change it feels like the later things get in soho you know the kind of the sort of the edgier it gets mm-hmm. and i say this as a, a man walking the streets alone <laughs> so it kind of definitely feels like an, an edgier like um there's sort of the chemistry changes in the air and, and that to me is the thing that's kind of compelling about that area is that like the, the shadow of the 60s in terms of that swing in London epicenter of cool, like that that legacy sort of like still looms very, very large. In so the area. Eloise reflects you in a way. Yeah. In that you embrace that period uh, and that location. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and I think also the kind of like the sort of the, the darkness of the area still kind of like leaves a stain in a way. <laughs> like, and, and that's, I mean, that's really sort of where the idea started to formulate. I think the other thing as well, like being nostalgic about a decade that you never lived in, I, I would, I would daydream constantly about traveling back to the 60s. And I would think about, wouldn't it be great to go back and you could go to that club or you could go to that gig or you could see that film in opening weekend. Oh, God, imagine watching Psycho with an audience that don't know what's coming. Or imagine like sort of, you know, seeing that band or... So I think about this a lot. And then I, the more I think about it, the more I'd start to sort of question myself of like, why am I thinking about this so much? And is me being nostalgic about this decade like a failure to deal with the present? And I think there's, you know, that that's something that like nostalgia essentially is a retreat. Right. And and that's sort of what the movie becomes about is the sort of the danger of nostalgia because, you know, romanticizing the past is very dangerous because to imagine that in the past there were the, the good old days, mm-hmm. this perfect decade where everything was good and nothing was bad this course is like a fallacy right right definitely that well what decided you this is your least comedic movie and what decided you to actually go forward and and do a straight horror film i've been thinking about doing it for a long time i mean it was your inspiration as a kid going and seeing all the video nasties and things that you could I think it was something where I I wanted to do that. I wanted to do like a darker film. I wanted to do something that was a a horror film that was or a psychological thriller that was more, um, you know, serious. And part of it, I guess, like talking about sort of the transgressive themes is that finding a subject matter that scared me and disturbed me and something that you couldn't enter into lightly. And I, I think if there's, you know, like this has been percolating in my head for over a decade 
And part of it was because I was, you know, you're finding a subject matter that is feels it, it, it's challenging and it's something that you want to challenge yourself. These it, were new muscles you were exercising here too. Yeah. And in fact, before I started doing The World's End, when, when I first mentioned doing the movie to Naira Park, my sort of longtime producer, we originally had it set up at Film 4 with when Tessa Ross was still there. I remember, like, I remember pitching the whole thing to her in the room. But the first thing that I wanted to do, because I was about to go off and do another movie, is like hire a researcher to research all of the facets of the of the story and especially the the darker side of it because those are stories that are kind of you know and and things have changed in the last four years where people have started to speak for themselves but prior to that there'd be like darker stories of share business that you'd hear as second or third hand stories or 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 worse like malicious you know gossip right and you know, so I wanted to kind of research it in a more sort of factual basis and, and every sort of aspect of the of the film. And that was something that this amazing researcher, Lucy Pardy, did. Um, and with getting, like, testimonials from people who lived in Soho at the time and people who still live there now. And, you know, this kind of research document was so, like, um, huge and overwhelming and and. and ha- fascinating and, and harrowing that it was sort of something where it's just like a validation of the story that I'd already come up with but something to kind of um I didn't want to like sort of start writing the film without kind of having done some kind of like serious groundwork you know right so was your mother afraid that you were telling a ghost story um well she <laughs> I there's two films in my career where I've asked my mother to send me so with Hot Fuzz, I said, write down all of your conspiracy theories about the area. <laughs> and um, she sent a document called Spooky Doings. And uh, and then for this one, I asked the same thing. I said, will you write down all of your supernatural experiences? So this time she sent a document called Dark Doings. <laughs> and so, so it, it is that thing where I, I, I think it's that, the, you know, the, 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 the central part of it is something that kind of keys into what, my mother feels is like presences in old buildings like yeah. and you know obviously like in the sort of buildings in london where they're like centuries old like many many people have lived there and what do they leave behind and what are the you know what is it like sort of like i said is it like a soul or is it the kind of like the sort of residue of an event mm-hmm. fascinating edgar thank you so much for spending some time with us i love last night in soho and i know our audience will as well and i wish you all the best of luck thanks mick it's nice to finally come on yeah good to catch up take care thank you for listening to postmortem with mick garris download new episodes every wednesday and subscribe on apple podcasts spotify or your favorite podcast app Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. 
Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Ice Coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.